You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Greta. Where is this? I have a bag that I found that I think belongs to Greta Hedag. Oh, you've been so kind. Would you like a cup of coffee? A chance encounter. I've been so lonely. I could help you. A new connection. I made a friend. Greta is an old lady. A terrifying secret. Oh my god, what did you do? March 1st. There's something you need to know about Greta. Don't take the bait. Just try to get rid of Greta. Starring Chloe Grace Moretz. Greta in this March 1st. Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. This is a true life and death mystery. A case that dates back to November 1970, a time before cell phones, CCTV cameras, Titan border security, DNA. Although this strange and haunting cold case occurred in Bergen, Norway, in theory it could be solved by anyone from anywhere in the world because no one knows where the woman came from. The woman appeared from nowhere. She traveled around with many false identities, and she died in a remote valley in what looked, looked like a classic case of suicide. But then she apparently set herself on fire. She was smart, stylish, sophisticated, and she left behind several puzzling clues. But after almost 50 years, they still remain unsolved. Book that we're featuring this evening is Isdal Woman, Life and Death, Norway's Biggest Mystery, with my special guest, journalist and author, Lauren Robinson. Welcome to the program, and thank you very much for agreeing to this interview, Lauren Robinson. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from the UK. Uh, let's start off immediately with why were you compelled to write this book? What brought you to write Isdal Woman, Life and Death? Well, I heard about the case around two years ago, and um, it was so unusual it got me hooked straight away. So um, I decided to look for a book on it. And I couldn't find one. Um, I could only find fiction that was written and little bits and pieces all over the Internet. So um, I decided to put together the story myself. Now, you say initially in the book that you have pieced together a complicated jigsaw puzzle from police reports, lab reports, journalistic articles from 1970 onward, various witness accounts, and also from the public broadcaster NRK and also public broadcaster from Britain, BBC, 
podcasts and websites, excerpts from author, and I'm probably going to mispronounce some of these names, obviously, Dennis Zucker Oski, uh, and author Tori Osland. Um, his book that you just alluded to, his fictional book. Uh, tell us first um, just a little bit about how you went about doing the research to write this book, because you come to some conclusions that no one else has come to in this, in this jigsaw that you put together. Tell us a little bit about uh, Tori Osland, who he is, and uh, the, this fictional book that he wrote, and in talking about the preparation to be able to write this. Right, well, Tori Osland and um, Dennis, I'm probably saying it wrong myself here, Dennis Thatcher Ask um, wrote these books some time ago. And um, they were originally, they were written in Norwegian, so no one could um, read them. And um, it's only quite recently that one has been translated, Operation Itopsy, um, has been translated and is now available in English. And um, his father worked actually worked on the case, but um, and he left him behind some notes. But the half of the book is based around a fictional spy story, so I didn't really find that very much help in many ways. Um, Dennis Thatcher asked, um, I had to find little bits and pieces all over the internet because, again, it's all written in Norwegian and I had to use a lot of Google Translate. So it's been very difficult trying to piece all the journalist articles and everything together because obviously it isn't written in English. So it took a long time. It took me probably almost a year to piece everything together. And then I had to put it in the, in the right order and put it in a detailed timeline and, you know, it's been very time-consuming, really. Yes, incredible. And uh, congratulations on this effort that you have endeavored to do. Let's go to November 29th, the day in question, 1970. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about Norway. You talk about a, a more moralistic society compared to Sweden and Denmark. Talk about uh, a little bit about Bergen, Norway, and at, especially at the time of 1970, tell us a little bit about uh, that before we talk about the where exactly on, on November 29, 1970, this Isnel woman was discovered. First, tell us about Norway and at that time in 1970 in Bergen, specifically. Right. Well, the population was less than 4 million at that time. And um, they didn't get many tourists. It wasn't a tourist destination at all. It wasn't popular. Um, they didn't live the way that we were living in the rest of Europe. Um, they lived very much by their old folk culture and traditions. Um, so whenever anybody went to visit there, they kind of stood out like a sore thumb in a way because... Um, they just weren't used to seeing um, all the different cultures around at that particular time. There was only one TV channel. There was only one private radio station. Um, so it was pretty much isolated from everything else that was going on, all the changes that were going on around. Certainly. Now, on November 29th, 1970, tell us, 
what this university professor found with his two daughters. Tell us how it came to be that they found this body before we talk about what exactly was found by police and put into their reports as part of the official record. Okay. Well, they were just taking um, a Sunday hike in the on, uh, morning. I think it was morning or almost lunchtime with these two young girls. Um, and I think it was the young girl of 12 that um, she moved away from her father and she was foraging around. And up a very steep slope, um, amongst all the trees and vegetation, there was a clearing and she saw a group of large rocks. And um, she saw something there, and it was a woman who was laid on her back, who was dead and partially burned. It was obviously a big shock to this little girl. She rang back to her father to tell him what she'd seen, and um, he went to see for himself. So then he decided that it was dangerous. There could be someone dangerous up there with them. So they rang back to the path around the lake to make their way back into Bergen, to go straight to the police and report what they'd seen. Now, it's about around a 45-minute walk around the lake back to the city. Um, So it must have been quite a long, frightening one for the three of them. Certainly. Now, once the police are there, you you describe it as uh, the police lawyer, so I'm sure that this is something to do with the prosecution uh, as we would talk in America or other countries. And his name was uh, Carl Halver Oz, and and I've heard it pronounced Oz, so uh, maybe you can correct me on that one. Um, tell us what they discover and what the police put together in terms of what is actually seen at this crime scene. Tell us about the items. Tell about the police impressions once they look and and gather all the evidence at that crime scene. Tell us about that crime scene. Okay, well, um, when they arrived there, which took a while to climb up, and they were wondering how a woman had got in that remote spot. Right. um, Sitting there amongst the rocks as she was. And um, when they got there, they they recorded the smell, first of all, the smell of burning flesh and... um, they noticed that most of her clothes had been burnt away, and he did comment it was not a pretty sight. Um, they saw certain things around her that were left from the fire, burnt fabric, a broken umbrella, um, carrying equipment, two melted plastic bottles, half a bottle of um, liqueur, and a nearly destroyed plastic cover from a passport possibly although they're not absolutely sure about that Uh, and then they noticed that um, the clothing that was left all the manufacturing labels were being cut out and um, everything had been removed from the plastic bottles all labels everything had been scraped off Um, they also noticed that strangely the woman had removed her ring and her earrings and placed them on a nearby rock. Um, She had been wearing a a watch, which was a solo brand of watch, and the watch had stopped at 12.32. And um, the watch 
wasn't placed with the jewellery. It was still attached to her wrist, but very loosely, almost half on, half off. Um, And when they looked around the site where she was, they found nothing around the scene that could identify the woman. So at that stage, they had to leave her and put her under guard for the night until they could go back the next day and look at the scene more carefully. Um, and that's when they they named her as Dull Woman because obviously they had no idea who this woman was. Um, the body was laid back against the rocks and she was um, in the boxer, what they call the boxer position, where her arms are, are bent upwards and clenched and her head was tilted back against the rocks. Um, There was no evidence that anyone else had been there at the crime scene with her. They couldn't find anything, so um, it instantly looked like a kind of suicide, but half of the police investigation team was suspected otherwise, so no one actually really knows. Um, It was just a very mysterious scene. Tell us more about the strange sort of events, or not strange events, I would say the circumstances that seem to be part- uh, peculiar regarding the fire and how she was burnt in that fire. And then talk about the fingerprints that were apparently, and all from all records, sanded off. I found that very unusual. Tell us more about how she was burnt and why that was suspicious and about the fingerprints as well. Well, I don't know where the, thing, the fingerprint thing came from. I mean, um, that is absolute rubbish. They, they did get fingerprints from her um, because when they eventually found her two suitcases, which had been left in the left luggage, there was a partial fingerprint on uh, a pair of sunglasses and they matched that to the fingerprints that they took at the crime scene. So she did have fingerprints. I mean, I think these are just rumours that fly around. Right. She she. They weren't fouled off at all. Um, sorry, what was your what was your second question? What was the significance or or controversy or questions that were arose from how she was burnt in that fire? Right. Well, the police thought that the fire had started at the lower half of her body, and. Um, they suspected that she was actually sitting upright when the fire started and that somehow the fire had blown back into her face and thrown her back on the rocks. Um, she, she had obviously been burning some of her personal documents, um, things that she didn't want people to see. Um, and obviously she'd taken the phenomal tablets and these would have had an effect on her coordination. So when she was trying to do things, it's possible that this fire, she caught a light by accident. Uh, nothing is clear in this case. This is a problem. I wish I could give you some straightforward answers, but um, everything's up in the air with this case. It really is. Let's get back to for people that don't know this story at all that the autopsy revealed, like you had mentioned, the and we talked about in the introduction, the 50 uh, sleeping pills, the fentanyl. Um, and, but what was the result of the autopsy in terms of cause of death? 
Um, the cause of death. Well, actually, the autopsy is quite um, brief, actually, surprisingly. Um, I'm just trying to find it now, and then I can give you the correct details. Um, she had... Her face was burned and unrecognisable, a small bruise visible on her neck. That she could have hit her neck on the rock, that doesn't mean there was any anything strange going on there. She was um, 165 centimetres in height, approximately 30 years of age, slim with broad hips, brownish black hair, small round face, olive skin, brown eyes, small ears. They also found the woman had never given birth, which is interesting. Um, and apart from the burns, there was no other health issues with her internal organs. The teeth were in a very bad condition. They had a lot of repairs with gold caps. Um, there was a marked partition between her front teeth. Located next to her was the liqueur bottle, two plastic bottles containing water, one plastic cup that had contained sleeping pills, Fenimol, and one silver spoon with the monogram fouled off. The autopsy concluded that the woman had died from phenomol and carbon monoxide poisoning. Analysis of her blood showed that she consumed at least 40 to 50 sleeping pills. And that's about it for the autopsy that I have here, whether there's a more detailed one somewhere around, but it hasn't been released to the public. Now, you talk about this as a full-scale police investigation afterwards, and tell us how they found the two suitcases and at the NSB railway station in Bergen, um, and what did they find in those suitcases? And then from there, what do police, what can they conclude from there, and, and how do they commence with their investigation as a result? On the last day that she was seen alive, which was the Monday morning, November 23rd, and this is six days, by the way, before her body was actually discovered, she had left two suitcases, one black and one a light brown or tan coloured, at the NSB railway station in Bergen. Um, the two suitcases were impounded on December the 2nd, which is nine days after she deposited them there. Now, it's not clear how many days she had booked these cases in for or whether it was just overnight. Um, I couldn't get any clarification on that at all. Um, so when they were impounded on December the 2nd, uh, the police became aware of them actually before her body was found. And I think they just put two and two together there and thought, we'll have a look in the suitcases, and um, everything matched. Um, the suitcases, well, the suitcases have some very strange things. That, do you want me to go through them all? There's an awful lot of things in there. Well, basically um, the most important things, I would think, for police. Yeah. There was... There were clothes and shoes in there. Now, all of the clothing that was in there had also had all the labels removed. Um, there was no markings on anything. Um, as I say, they found this pair of sunglasses which contained a partial fingerprint, which is how they identified them as her sunglasses. Um, <clears throat> I think there was a clothes brush made in Germany, which was something... 
And then, of course, they found a wig that she'd been using, which was a short, they call it a Napoleon-cut short, mahogany brown reddish wig. Um, They found a plastic bag of shoes that had been bought in Rome. Um, I'm just looking down my list now. They found some maps, a map over Scandinavia, maps of Norway... Um, where she had scribbled on numbers in ballpoint pen. They found money in different... um, There was, I think there was German and there was Swedish money. There was English pound coins. Um, Just looking, they found purses and they found her makeup. Um... Yeah, they found 130 Norwegian krona, 50 Belgian centimes, is that how you say it? Six British pens, 5.5 Swiss francs. They found more alcohol, another bottle of alcohol. Um, Fur hat. Oh, they found a matchbox, which was marked Hotel Noble, Carl Johans Gate 33, Oslo. Um, they found plastic purses, two, two, two toothbrushes, which I found interesting. One yellow and one blue. Does that signify a male and a female one? I don't know. Um, they found a tube of eczema cream and a bottle of Tony Pound, which is a vitamin B supplement. They found her jewellery, which wasn't real jewellery. It was all fake costume jewellery. Um, razor blades. And I think the things that stood out to me was there were no passports or personal documents. Um, some of the clothing that had been described by witnesses also wasn't in there. Um, they found razor blades, but actually no razor to use the razor blades. There was no hairbrush, comb, hairspray, toothpaste. Um, Now, the thing that really interested me in this story, there was also a bag that she'd been carrying around, which had been described, and it was a white travel sports-style bag with the logo California printed on the side. This bag was never found after her death. She hadn't left it in the station with her other luggage. She hadn't left it in a, a hotel room. There were no traces of it near the fire at the death scene. Um, no one knows what happened to this white California bag. What of the Italian photographer's postcard was found in her luggage? Oh, yes. Well, uh, they found two postcards. One was a Madonna and child. So um, they did assume that she was Catholic. And um, they also found a postcard of a winter scene which was taken by a kind of half-famous photographer at that time from Italy. And um, he used to travel around. He actually wrote a book, Lands of the Midnight Sun. He used to travel around Norway and Sweden and he would take photographs of all the beautiful sites and hotels and things around there. He was a tourist photographer. And he had... Several homes. I think he had one in Oslo. He had one in Milan, in Italy. 
Um, and uh, he used to stay at different hotels and stay with different friends and travel around a lot. Um, so he became a person of interest to the police because they'd found this postcard of his in her suitcase. Um, and that led to a whole other story within a story, if you like. Um, he could be connected, he may not be connected. You know, this is a very complicated story, and once you really get into it, it's not quite as simple as you think it is when you first read about his dull woman. What did the police conclude from the information that he provided? And at that time, was he looked at at, at all as a suspect? He was. I think. It, I think it took them a while to track him down because he was constantly on the move. But they did bring him in for an interview, and um, he wasn't particularly helpful. And the story he gave them, and this now comes down to the book by Dennis Thatcher Ask. Um, the story he gave them wasn't truthful at all. But the police obviously didn't know that at the time. They took the story from him at face value and they concluded that um, this student that he had bumped into and given this postcard was not his dull woman. But the manager, the hotel where the photographer and, and the student had stayed, who was said to be Chinese from Johannesburg, South Africa, um, the manager there said that she did resemble uh, the picture that he later saw of his dull woman and that her teeth were practically the same. Um, it's so complicated. I, I don't even know how to tell the story in a logical way because there are so many elements to it, if you see what I mean. Um, but yes, they saw him as suspicious, but, you know, he was let go. And he actually admitted he'd taken a photograph of this student from Johannesburg. Um, uh, and it's crazy to me why they didn't follow this up and demand this photograph from him because this could have answered a lot of questions and solved at least part of the mystery. Um, so I can't say what was in the police's mind at that time. Um, this photographer, he had been accused of assault and rape by one of his former models, so yes, he was absolutely a person of interest, and now they could just let him go and get away with all of this. I really don't know. I don't quite understand that part. But, it, but they did, and um, they didn't hear from him again. How did the police proceed after this in light of letting him go? How did the police proceed with this, and what comes and what comes of the case afterwards? Nothing, absolutely nothing. They don't, they don't hear from him again. Um, the students from Johannesburg, no one knows what happens, happened to her, where she was going to. I mean, her story was that um, she was a student, Yet, she told the manager she worked in Johannesburg in South Africa. As it turned out, she didn't even come from Johannesburg, South Africa. She said she was a student at a university in Greece, and when it was later checked on, she had been a student in uh, the university in Greece, but that was three years earlier. She was no longer a student there. Um, and her story was that she earned enough money to travel Europe for six months for half the year. Um, 
um, which was pretty strange in itself. She also, they said they bumped into one another accidentally and the photographer had offered her a lift because she was traveling in the same direction that he was going. Um, other witnesses said, no, they, they already knew one another. They were seen together before. This was no coincidence. They actually met up purposely and were traveling together. So this whole story is very suspicious, and um, I would say if it has nothing to do with this dull woman, they were certainly covering up something. What that was, I've no idea. And how this dull woman got her hands on this photograph again, um, a mystery. What was the public interest and the media response at that time during that investigation? In Norway? Um, I, I, I can't really answer that because obviously I know nothing of Norway back in 1970, but from what I can see, it was a big case. Um, I'm sure it was on the news. But the case was covered up right from the start. I think um, the public were only aware of certain elements of, of the case, of what they were allowed to hear, and the rest seemed to be covered up because uh, Kripos and Potts, which were the secret intelligence, the secret police, they got involved very early on. So the actual police, Norwegian police investigation who discovered the body, were kind of cut out once they got involved and they were left in the dark as much as the public. So um, even the investigation is a mystery in itself, apart from the case. I mean, every single element in this story is a mystery. And um, unfortunately, I don't have any answers. And all I could do was document everything that I found and put it in order in the hope that the story made a little bit more sense by doing a detailed timeline. Um, so I can't really say what the response was in Norway at that time, although, I mean, they do class it as their, their biggest mystery as far as um, cold cases are concerned. It's kind of, it's like our English version of Jack the Ripper. It's a, it's, it's a big mystery to them in Norway. And, and the woman didn't even come from Norway. I mean, she could have, she could have been living anywhere in the world. You know, so Let's the isotopes. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, the, the isotopes show that she was born in the French-German border area, uh, which is fine, and and um, she was born during the outbreak of war um, when Hitler came to power. So anything could have happened to her and her family. They could have been separated, displaced. Um, again, we don't know the answer to that, but when she got older and when she grew out of her teenage years, she didn't necessarily stay in Europe. She could have moved or married or become involved with people from anywhere in the world. So uh, uh, this case is bigger than Norway. It's just that it's never really had any publicity outside of Norway until, I would say, the last two, three years. Absolutely. Let's talk about the origins of how they found where the Isdel woman originated from, likely. When we stop for a second to talk about the sponsor, which is FabFitFun. The 2019 FabFitFun Spring Box is on sale now. Treat yourself with items in it such as the Unplug Meditation Aromatherapy Diffuser. Do you love 
discovering new products? Are you a beauty and fashion maven constantly on the hunt for the next best thing? Ever read about or spot something online that you've always wanted to try but never have? Then you must try FabFitFun. FabFitFun allows women everywhere to discover new products as well as including rave review, must-have brands that you know and love. It's like Christmas four times a year. Stumped on gift ideas? FabFitFun is a great gift for yourself or for a loved one. Surprise your mom or sister with the spring box as a gift or to show thanks. Do you have a daughter who is going to college or a friend who is a new mom? FabFitFun is an awesome care package. My wife received her FabFitFun spring box. She remarked that just seeing the beautiful-looking box, it looks collectible itself. Inside, she discovered an unplug meditation aromatherapy diffuser, which changes colors, which is really cool, an orange and bergamot levito body lotion, a Dr. Brandt eye depuffing gel, a Venus Williams jump rope, a swell steel water bottle, champagne body scrub, cat eye sunglasses, lots of surprises, interesting high-end products. My wife Lisa was very, very impressed and happy with the FabFitFun spring box. Full-size products, no samples of anything. Every box is guaranteed to have over $200 plus in retail value. The 2019 spring box total retail value equals 347 to 354 354 $354.99, sorry. Great for discovering new brands and products. What a better way to shop. Sign up for FabFitFun today. These boxes always sell out. Use my code MURDER to get $10 off your first box. Go to FabFitFun.com to sign up and start getting the box for a life well lived. Use promo code MURDER to get $10 off your first box. That's $200 for only $39.99. Go to FabFitFun.com and use my code MURDER to get $10 off your first FabFitFun box. Lauren, we were talking about what happened in 2016 that changed everything and a new initiative and endeavor by uh, public radio, NRK, and investigators. Tell us about what happens in forensic science that enables people to take a look at this case more seriously, and the search for the Isdell women is ramped up. Well, they decided to reopen the case and see if um, modern forensics, you know, could give them more answers now um, than it could obviously at the time. And um, they discovered that the woman's jawbone had been preserved, and so they decided to do some tests on this um, jawbone. Um, and the University of Bergen and the Norwegian Criminal Investigation Service, Kripos, they, conduct they conducted some isotope analysis tests on the woman's teeth and they were looking for chemical signature left by elements that make up all our teeth, wherever in the world you come from. The tests include oxygen isotopes, and this can tell us the areas where the, the woman drank um, when she was growing up from birth. And the strontium isotope analysis reflects the type of foods that she would have eaten and the type of soil in the area where she grew up. Um, 
they didn't know what they were going to find basically when they started these tests because they'd never really been done before. Um, amazingly, it came back with a result and it showed that she um, had started her early life on the German border area. Um, so they decided to do some more tests and they found tissue samples from her uh, lungs, heart, adrenal glands, ovaries. And um, these samples were also sent away for DNA analysis. And um, after months and months, the latest results came back that she was of European descent spent her early life in the area where I've just mentioned and relocated from the eastern or middle Europe to a more western part of Europe. Um, And this seems to tie in with when Hitler came to power. So she could have moved from Germany, uh, the Nuremberg area, to somewhere in France. Uh, It even shows up in the UK a possibility of Wales, the area of Wales, which is where a lot of the kinder transport children were sent there for their safety, also during the war. So there are endless possibilities of what could have happened here. Um, But at least it pins her down to where she started off her life, you know, which is quite helpful. Um, but no one in those areas has ever come forward to say they knew this woman, um, which is very strange. And um, also, when she when she was speaking, when she was staying in all of the hotels, she was either speaking in a kind of bad English, broken English, or German. She never spoke French. Yet when they analysed her handwriting, they said it was kind of done in the French style of handwriting. Um, so it's possible that her natural language was French. Um, but again, you know, I'm speculating here. No one knows for sure. Tell us about the effort to try to recreate a composite drawings. There were six different drawings commissioned by a U.S. artist. Tell us about these drawings and that effort to try to reach people to try to identify the Isdell woman. Well, they got the, the the images of her were all taken from um, people who had been in contact with her, and these were mainly um, the different hotels where she'd stayed, where she'd stayed under a different name, in a different disguise, um, with a different occupation. And um, the drawings just seemed to vary a lot because all of these witnesses, they describe her as... Um, Oriental-looking, Asian-looking. She had um, olive skin, brown eyes, a small round face, small ears, um, dark shoulder-length hair, which was in a very much 60s style. Um, Yet the the police artist sketches that were done at that time, every single one looks different from the other, and some of them just look like a cartoon character. And how they could expect anyone to come forward... Um, with the artist impressions that they gave at that time is um, laughable to me. So I wanted to take the artist impressions that they'd done on there, combine them with the witness statements, 
And then I spent a long time online looking up different um, Oriental and Asian eye shapes and noses and mouth. And I put together what I imagine the Eastall woman would have looked like with and without her disguises. And that was an important part to me. I wanted to try and bring her to life because I don't, we've never seen her. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What is the significance or tell us of some of the behavior that some of those hotel guests uh, experienced and noted about the Isdell woman during her stay in those hotel rooms? Well, they all, they all saw her as a very smart, stylish businesswoman, um, confident, um, used to traveling on her own. If she wasn't happy with her hotel room, um, she would instantly change it for another one and in one of the hotels. Um, can't remember offhand which one it was. She changed rooms three times in one day. Um, she used to ask for the cheapest rooms. Um, she didn't want one with a bathroom. She just used to go to the bathroom down the corridor. Yet she gave off this air of um, an expensive kind of businesswoman, but everything was fake about her, really, when you think about it. Every single thing was fake about her, from her name and her occupation and the way she dressed and her jewellery and her wig. Um, But her behaviour became very strange. Um, She turned one of the tables in a hotel room, in one of the hotels, she turned it upside down and placed it near a door. Um... Who knows why she did that? She told the maid that she didn't want her room cleaning in one of the hotels. Um, she also moved an armchair. I think it was an armchair, not a, a wooden chair. I think it was an armchair that she moved outside of her hotel room into the corridor when she was occupied in the room. And when she went out, she would move the armchair back in the room again. Um, and then, of course, there are these two mysterious men who she met up with in the hotel. No one knows who they were. Um, and they, they, towards the end, they said that she was nervous, she was watchful. They all commented that she looked sad. She never smiled. She never um, talked to any of the hotel staff. She never chatted with anyone. She would only speak when she needed something. So... Her behavior wasn't quite normal. What about the credibility of the witness that came forward much later and said that five days before this disappearance, he had an encounter with her and two men, again, two men. Tell us about that and Mm. what you think of it and what everyone thought of it. Yeah, I haven't added that to my e-book because... um, I think it's very questionable why he came forward so late after the event. He also, you know, he described this woman as as, as wearing um, a dress and high heels and um, walking up the... I mean, this is impossible to walk up this valley with those kind of clothes on. Right. And um, they're not the type of clothes that she was found in. I mean, she was she was dressed for the occasion. If, if you look through her suitcase items, she had clothing that was suitable for Norwegian temperatures. I don't think she would have wandered around in high-heeled shoes and a dress. Um, 
And the, there, there is no one, the friends who he says he was with, I think he was with a party of two friends, if I can remember rightly, although I'm not absolutely sure about that. Um, they've never come forward to back up his story. Um, I just don't think it's credible. And, um, I mean, if you, if you want to believe that story, that's absolutely fine. But I didn't want to um, add it to my book. I, want to, I wanted to just add together the facts that I know are more or less going to be right, going to be correct. So let's talk let's talk about what happens when you look at everything. Uh and especially when this story again gets worldwide attention via BBC and the NRK and these podcasts. Tell us about that effect um again on this investigation with those podcasts, and before we talk about your investigation, what you found, the jigsaw puzzle that you put together, and your conclusions. Well, I think the the story with NRK BBC has, has caught the public's imagination, and it has got it out there. Um, you know, maybe not as much as it could have in, say, Australia, America, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa, Um I would just like to widen the story. And they've put the basic details on there. And the podcasts, they're very interesting to listen to, and I enjoyed them very much. But there's an awful lot of detail missing. And I think to understand this story, um, it, it really is all about detail because we know nothing about this woman. We know nothing about her childhood. We, know, we don't know um, who who she grew up with, who her school friends were, Um what what influenced her in life, and I think that um, the detailed timeline, bringing her to life, looking at all the evidence, the little clues that she left us behind is so important, and um, you can't really get that in a podcast. You know, you have to look at the story as a whole and look at it in the order as it happened uh, to really understand it. I mean, would you not agree with that? I think Absolutely. I think it's a complicated story when you hear just little bits and pieces of it, if you see what I mean. It's like um, the incident at Tananga with the fishermen. That, that's a vitally important clue there. Um, but we're going back again to more or less the beginning of the story again. Do you see what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. you, can take, you can take pieces of this story and it, and it can lead anywhere. It's like a labyrinth and... Um, to really understand it, you have to put it all in the right order. You talked about the fisherman and his sighting of her. So tell us about that and what what you think it alludes to and how it connects to other evidence and witness statements that you have put together. Uh, well, this happened during a second visit to Norway because um, she came twice. She came... She came uh, the first time they were conducting what they call penguin missile tests. Um, these were secret tests that were being carried out at the dock in Tananga at the naval base there. And it so happens that while they were conducting the secret tests, these missile tests, um, she happened to be there both times that they were conducting the test, which is how the spy theory came about. Right. Um, Tananga is the next 
port down from Stavanger, they're very close together, and a lot of the naval base, the personnel there were staying in hotels in Stavanger, where she happened to be staying herself. There was a, <coughs> excuse me, there was a fisherman called Burton Rot, Burton Rot, sorry, and um, he was repairing his fishing nets in Tananga, and um, when he looked up this very well-dressed, stylish woman was walking along the dock and he thought it was very, very odd because people dressed up never came to the docks looking like that. And she walked up and down and she never spoke to him. He carried on repairing his net and when he looked up again, the woman was still there and now she was talking to um, a naval officer. And he said that they were talking for quite some time. Um, before she left. So he reported this um, to the authorities to say that, you know, it was a suspicious incident that they should really look into, which, of course, they did. Now, several months, um, sorry, several weeks later in December, um, he was going away for Christmas with his family at the railway station and... um, a car drew up and these two men came out and they asked him to get into their car and his wife was left on the station with the children, I would assume. Uh, When he came back, these two men had given him um, a gun and a knife for self-protection. So they obviously thought that there was something um, quite bad that could happen to him because of reporting this incident. Um, whether they thought this was a spy um, ring that could take revenge on him or whether it was a criminal organization that could take revenge on him. Um, Who knows? But um, it was a very strange incident, and um, I find it very odd that um, the secret police would just pull up at a busy railway station and hand somebody over two weapons when they're just about to go on holiday, but apparently this is the story that the family have given. So that was another very odd incident to add to the whole mystery. How much other information did you find that supported the idea that she was a spy, specifically? Um, well, not very much, to be perfectly honest with you, because apart from the incident in Penanga, um, the penguin missile test, and the fact that she had used at least 10 different identities, um, there was nothing really to say that she was actually a spy. I mean, there was the the spy catcher who NRK interviewed who said that a real spy would only have one identity. They wouldn't have 10. Um, They certainly wouldn't stand out from the crowd and draw attention to themselves like she did. So there isn't really any evidence at all that she was a spy. I mean, there's no evidence to say that the woman who did appear in Tananga at the docks was his sole woman. Um, You know, I'm sure there could have been more than one woman in um, Norway that had dark dark brown hair and dressed stylishly. So um, there is no real evidence to say she was a spy. Again, this is part of the mystery. What was she? Was she a criminal? Was she on the run from somebody? Um... Was she having this illicit affair with somebody? Was she having a mental breakdown? 
Um, was she a low-level courier? Um, was she with a gang of fraudsters? Anything is possible with this story. I mean, um, I think that's what interested me so much about it. Anything is possible, literally. What did you attribute the obsessive removal of labels and the doctor's name on a prescription form or or on a container? Uh, What can you attribute that to? Do you think that might be some sort of mental illness, or do you think there's more understandable explanation? Well, again, I mean, this could be anything. She certainly didn't want to be known. She certainly wanted to stay invisible, not not only while she was alive, but also after death. Um, because I haven't seen anything in my research to suggest that she was murdered or assassinated. Um, I say it could have been an accident quite easily. She was so drugged at the time. Um, or she intended to kill herself, but... Uh, it seemed to me that with all her different identities and all the effort that she put into remaining invisible, this was seemed to be a number one priority, definitely. I mean, in the last hotel that she registered in, she attempted to change her handwriting. She suddenly started in capital letters and leaning the letters in a different direction. So I can only assume that she thought the authorities were on to her because they would be the only people who could go in that hotel and demand to look at those documents that she'd filled in. Um, So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's anybody's guess, isn't it? Why did she want to be so anonymous, even, even in death? I can't answer that, unfortunately. You talk about there was a split. There was a not a unanimous decision to support that suicide uh, conclusion from the coroner and then the police. Tell us a little bit about the police response where they didn't believe this was a suicide. I don't know. Absolutely, I don't know anything about that. It was just a comment that um, one of the investigators made that a lot of them thought it was more suspicious than um, just simply naming it a suicide. Um, and then, as I've also documented as well in my e-book, the, there were other two um, suspicious deaths, not not in 1970, but um, the first one, they were, well, they were also really classed as suicides. And um, it seems very strange that all these women seem to travel to Norway on their own and end up dead, doesn't that? There's something... There's something very strange there about Norway. What is the attraction of Norway? I really don't know. Um, but I can't. I can't say what um, what the police were thinking at, at that time. I don't have the notes that um, they left behind, and I don't know what they were saying on the Norwegian news channels at that time. But yes, I mean, some of them were certainly suspicious that it, this was not just a simple suicide. Well, I say simple suicide. It's not simple. Setting fire to yourself is anything but simple, is it? It's very unusual. Tell us about the two women and the similarities in in their uh, conclusions that they were suicides. Tell us about the similarities in those cases. Yes, there was a woman. um, I, I don't think I could even pronounce her name, but there was a woman in 1966 who had also traveled to Norway on her own, 
And um, she had also used fake identities. Um, and she stayed in different hotels and um, along the way. And every hotel she'd used a different identity. Um, she she was found at the coastline. I'm just trying to find the name of the Galena Bread Bredemenger. I probably said that wrong. 1966, July the 14th, 1966. She was found on a beach. And two children found her again. Two children found her on the beach. She wasn't moving. She was propped up against the rocks looking in towards the sea. Um, the police were called because the woman wasn't moving. The police were called. They found she'd removed labels from her clothing. They were all cut out. Um... They'd found sleeping pills, that, and they classed that as a, another suicide. Um, they'd found she'd used these various names, and she'd used um, and one alias, Mrs. F. Bruce, from 157 Kensington Road, London. Um, when they tracked her movements, they actually found in one of the hotels where she'd stayed earlier on, she'd actually used her real passport which was lucky for them, otherwise I think they would have struggled. And um, they found that she'd come from Holland. And they found out that she was actually married, and um, she was a 39-year-old married woman from Amsterdam. She had um, left her husband and um, just walked out on him, as far as I can make out one day. They, they contacted her husband. He was interviewed by the police, and he told them that his wife suffered from severe psychological problems and that one month before she was found dead she left Amsterdam and left him a note stating that she would not be buried in the Netherlands. Um, there's no more information than that. I couldn't find the rest of the letter, wow. what she said to him. Um, I don't know if the police actually saw and read the letter for themselves but this is what he told the police. So the case was closed, classed as a suicide. Um, later on, they have found out that um, they'd found some of the documents regarding the case, and they they tracked some more of her, um, where she'd travelled to and the hotel she'd stayed in. They found a map in which Lekka, where she was found dead, there was a map with a red crossing point, and this is where her life had ended, on this red crossing point. So um, her husband, she was buried, um, and her husband did not want her back in uh, the Netherlands. He did, he'd never even reported his wife missing, so he just was totally uninterested. But again, the police didn't seem to go further in investigating him either. Wow. Um, so that was a very strange case, very similar to his old woman, because, again, she was yeah. traveling alone, she was using various identities, and she killed herself at the coastline. Um, and that was only three years before his old woman happened. So I, I, added that, I added that into the e-book. Of course, it may not be connected at all, but, I mean, it's a very strange coincidence, isn't it? So. It's... It's more than a coincidence, it would seem, in terms of the, especially when you add the removal of the labels again. Mm. Yeah, it seemed to be a very um, normal thing in Norway at that time, didn't it? 
Uh, very strange. And then, of course, you've got another one in 1995, which is much later on. And um, Jennifer Fergate, who died at a luxury hotel in Oslo. And she was found shot in her room from a single bullet hole to the head. Again, she travelled on her own. Um, she acted very strange while she was there. Very strange while she was there. I won't go into the whole story because it's quite a complicated one. But the police found that um, on the night that she was found dead in her room, she'd had a message from the hotel saying that her bills were unpaid and would she go to a reception and sort it out. And the maid said, well, there'd been a do, do not disturb sign on the door for over 24 hours, so they thought there was something strange going on there. Um they sent a security guard up to her room to check on her. And as he went up to the room and knocked on the door, he heard a gunshot fired in the room. Um, he immediately went back down to reception to report this and tell the receptionist to form the police that he thought he'd heard a gunshot in, in the room. Um, when the police came and they found... Um, Jennifer Fergate, which again wasn't her real name. It, she was under an alias. Um, nobody had asked to see her passport, apparently, when she checked in. Uh, nobody had asked to see her credit card registered or anything at all like this. She just seemed to wander in, um, give a fake name, get herself a room. Nothing had been paid. She'd been living there for free for the three days she was there. Um when they found that when they when they examined the room and she was there sort of half lay on the bed with this gunshot to her head, that there was nobody, no one else who could have left the room without it being registered because of the key card. There was no mm-hmm. other exit because she was quite high up in this multi-storey hotel. can't remember which floor she was on now, but she was quite high up and there was no other way out of that room. So again, they they can only assume she killed herself. And um, again, strange behaviour, wandering around on her own, um, using fake identity. The, you know, it's like it's, it seems to be a pattern. And then, of course, you have the other case of the other two women who were wandering around at the same time as this dull woman. You've got Annalise, who said she was running from an abusive husband. And then you have the student who is wandering around from the student, the Chinese student from Johannesburg, who's also wandering around at the same time. So, I mean, could it really get any more confusing, this story? I don't know. Absolutely. You put together as much as you could with this, with this very, very, again, Norway's biggest mystery, but this has captivated so many people in the world's imagination, and you have put a lot of the separate pieces together here in this Isdell Woman, Life and Death, Norway's Biggest Mystery. I want to thank you very much, Lauren, for coming on and talking about Isdell Woman, Life and Death, Norway's Biggest Mystery. Uh, this is an ebook release and available on Amazon. Um, do you have a Facebook page or a website, or can they just go look for this book on Amazon? Uh, well, you can you can find that. it on uh, Amazon, yeah, all around um, Canada, America, UK, um, Europe. Um, I just hope that 
it makes more sense after reading it. I hope that the story can be spread to more places, more people, because someone in the world knows this woman. I mean, there's got to be hundreds, if not thousands, of people out there who have known this woman. And I would just love for it to be... It just takes one person to come forward, doesn't it? And this is what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that by by bringing her to life and showing a better artist impression of what she could have looked like will also help as well. Absolutely. I congratulate you on your effort and putting together a fascinating book, Isabel Woman, Life and Death, Norway's Biggest Mystery. Thank you for calling all the way from United Kingdom. Thank you very much, Lauren Robinson. You have a great evening. Good night. Okay, thank you thank very much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Good night. Greta. Where is this? I have a bag that I found that I think belongs to Greta Hedag. Oh, you've been so kind. Would you like a cup of coffee? A chance encounter. I've been so lonely. Well, I could help you. A new connection. I made a friend. Greta is an old lady. A terrifying secret. First. There's something you need to know about Greta. Don't take the bait. Just try to get rid of Greta. Starring Chloe Grace Moretz. Greta. Into this much first. Greta. Where is this? I have a bag that I found that I think belongs to Greta Hedag. Oh, you've been so kind. Would you like a cup of coffee? A chance encounter. I've been so lonely. Well, I could help you. A new connection. I made a friend. Greta is an old lady. A terrifying secret. Oh, my God! What did you do? On March 1st. There's something you need to know about Greta. Don't take the bait. Just try to get rid of Greta. Starring Chloe Grace Moretz. Let me go! Greta. Into this March 1st. <laughs> 